This is the Sustainable Goat Podcast. We look to nature for how we should interrelate to the world. All the answers are within nature if we take the time to listen. But what we have to find is a reasonable way how to handle plastic. You know, consumers expect more. They're expecting brands to be more sustainable. They're choosing sustainable brands. These are the stories and ideas from those that will define a generation. I'm your host, Steve Kastenem, and this is our planet in focus. I'm excited to finally have this interview. Um, so, I mean, to have you on the podcast, I think is really unique because it's a it's a chance for us to talk about really what circular apparel and fashion can look like. I think it's one of those areas that not a lot of people have taken the time to really look at deeply. Um, you know, we may look at materials, we may look at infrastructure, but to kind of look at all of it circularly, um, not to plug super circle, but the idea of looking at it that way, I, I find is really important. So um, before we dive like super deep into what super circle does, Stuart, welcome. But I, I want to learn a little bit more about what young Stuart was kind of all about. Like what, what got you interested just in fashion apparel manufacturing i mean all of it what what were you what was growing up like yeah i'll um i'll talk a little bit about childhood uh and and what brought me here um and and really kind of the interest in in uh fashion and the fashion industry textiles uh really started kind of college and early career um but uh, on my end, uh, I had always been really interested sort of in sustainability. I really kind of explored that more through like outdoors and the outdoors movement really when I was growing up. So like a lot of backpacking, a lot of hiking, uh, a lot of time outside. Grew up in North Carolina, so spent a lot of time in the Appalachian Mountains, which was great. Um, and and really um, have, have been like always sort of embodied this idea of uh, – of like entrepreneur, uh, you know, mindset, if you will. And, uh, for me, uh, I think some of that also manifested in, um, in, uh, problems with authority and wanting to, you know, be fiercely independent, which, uh, for entrepreneurs out there, I think that's going to resonate. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, where that really started, um, you know, in my early career is, is I graduated university. Um, I did a post-grad program that brought me out to, uh, to Asia. Um, and it was really the first time that I had spent meaningful time abroad, um, was like horribly traveled up until I was like 20 years old. Um, and then just parachuted in, uh, and spent three years actually, um, uh, across Southeast Asia and, and mainland China mostly. Um, and it was like a total eye-opening experience. So I had been on the track that I feel like, you know, so many are on where it's good grades in high school, get into a good college, study really hard. Um, I was going to be a doctor, which is a story for a whole nother time. Uh, and, and this was meant to be like a 10 month blip before I, you know, took the MCAT and went back to, went back to medical school. Didn't, you know, spoiler alert, did not do that. Um, and and when I was over there, it was just this insane, wild freedom in, in, in a positive way. It was a total cultural immersion into something totally different. Um, you know, there were, there was for the first time 
you know, I experienced real language barrier. Um, and so doing simple things became incredibly difficult, which built sort of this resilience and tenacity, or at least, you know, started to cultivate the early kernels of that. Um, and then for me, when, when I was in, in college, um, this was, uh, and I'm going to date myself a little bit, this was like the rise of like menswear blogs for the first time. Um, this is like, you know, before this fashion and, uh, and that industry was really, you know, sort of the walled garden of Vogue and Condé Nast. And for the first time now, this was something entirely different um, and got really interested in it, got really interested in personal style, got really interested in the way that people were leveraging digital platforms to talk about retail and, and fashion. Um, and so when I moved to China, uh, I deliberately kind of sought out two things. One was um, opportunity around retail. And, and really, when you're in mainland China, a lot of that you know manifests itself into manufacturing um, and production. You're so close to the means of production. And the other was startups. Was really interested in this idea of technology and of small teams and being able to make kind of like outsized impact early on in my career. Um, and and so did both of those things while living and working in Shanghai. Um, and it was uh, it was incredible. So. Spent a lot of time in manufacturing factories in Dongguan and Fujian and Shanghai. Um, and for those listening in retail, those are like the epicenters for footwear manufacturing, which is really, really where I kind of got my start. And, and the interesting thing there was um, early in my career, uh, I saw kind of the foundational component to, to the retail industry, kind of curtain pulled back. Um, and it was eye-opening in A, how things were made you know, kind of where the rubber meets the road, but B, also kind of the environmental impact that came with that. Um, and it was it was a pretty steep, steep cost there. Um, and that's both with, um, you know, actual like waste within the supply chain. It's also, you know, a lot of people are now talking about scope three emissions, a lot of that kind of earlier on before there was a lot of light shed there. Um, and, and thought that there had to be a better way to rethink um, sort of retail. And so that was like early, early career, early genesis, um, in, into retail and, and, and into sustainability, um, which ultimately led to us really focusing on, um, circularity and this idea of, uh, you know, new, uh, old clothing, you know, being used to make new clothing. Um, and that was really like an academic concept up until, 2018, 2019, um, and, and really have dedicated the last, you know, five or six years um, to operationalizing that and making that a reality today at scale for the retail industry uh, to start. What kind of brought you into, I, I guess, I mean, from, from the menswear perspective, I mean, you saw this blog space kind of, you know, start to explode, but what was it about fashion that drew you in and more specifically footwear? Because I mean, it is it is kind of this world of not as much understanding around how things are done. And, you know, you'll see someone walking down the runway and then you'll see, you know, four or five years later, that article clothing obviously gone through iterations come to market. What, what is it that brought you to the fashion space more so than really even being a doctor? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I think it, I just, when I, when I was growing up, I, um, I like was really drawn to the creativity side, but didn't not a lot of outlets to express that. 
Um, and it was this fun personal journey on, you know, style and fashion, how that makes people feel, how that makes individuals feel. Um, and then loved sort of like the tactile element of like clothing and the physical manifestation of that creativity, um, which was awesome. And like the, the blog, which has now moved over to social media and, and TikTok and the like, um, was also deeply personal, which was, which was very cool. So um, it felt like you were able to take kind of these large industry messages and boil them down into kind of individual subsets, which I thought was super fun. Um, and so, so got really interested in that, really interested more in the menswear space because that's, that's kind of where I started. Um, and then on the footwear side, uh, what really drew me there was the material innovation that was happening. And I think it's interesting, um, footwear and cut and sew are like two totally different beasts, right? And like, um, they're almost like two totally different industries, if you will. But the footwear space has done a really phenomenal job, I think, in the past decade plus, really thinking about sustainability. And like, I think that's rooted in, you know, the, the technical innovation that's been, that's been happening there, right? With you know, the Nikes and the Adidas's of the world across sneakers, um, you know, Anybody has seen uh, the Air movie with like Matt Damon and Ben Affleck? That's always been kind of part of that DNA, and I think there was there was more of an appetite for play and for innovation um, in the product category, which I thought was super cool. And when I was coming up, it was it was all about material innovation, right? So it was this idea of using maybe like traditional textiles or um, new. Uh, but done in, in, in the footwear vertical that hadn't been done before, different techniques, um, you know, to eliminate waste around like circular knitting. It, it was just really interesting. And, and I was seeing this at scale, like the Nikes and the Adis of the world um, kind of rolling this stuff out, which I thought was so interesting. Um, and then the footwear supply chain, uh, I just happened to learn it. And um, it's interesting, like, there's just a bunch of old shoe dogs that have been in it forever. Um, and they're like grizzled and, uh, and battle worn. And, uh, and the, the manufacturing partners that I met while in China were awesome. Um, and I have a really good friend, um, that, that owns a bunch of factories in China and he was one of the early manufacturers for Tom's footwear. Um, so when I, you know, originally started Thousandfell, which we can get into kind of the businesses, Thousandfell and Super Circle, I came to him and he like immediately understood it. He like had saw, he saw the vision of, of what Tom was doing around social good um, and, and really helped kind of support that on the manufacturing side. So learned a lot kind of by doing and kind of under his tutelage. And um, it was awesome. It was just like such an experience. So was it, I guess this movement, was it born out of, like more than the incoming generation to kind of be like, Hey, let's, let's flip this and let's do it completely differently. Let's do different weaves and different materials. Cause you know, we have this silhouette that we kind of have always done and let's play with it and have fun. Or was it actually just kind of this, how can we be more efficient? Cause I think there's sometimes yeah. you're, you're going into another category. It's like, what is actually influencing that? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Let me, let me also tee up for everybody kind of, kind of the, the two businesses. So we started about five or six years ago, uh, a company called Thousandfell. Um, we make, you know, kind of everyday perfect silhouettes. Um, 
they look and feel just kind of like your core staples, but they're fully recyclable. So we collect them back when you're done, we pull them apart, we recycle the component parts back into new feed, we can integrate those back into our supply chain to make, to make new product. Um, and then the, the second business that we launched a couple of years ago, Super Circle, um, is uh, a, a, the continuance of that sort of circularity journey where it's the technology and reverse logistics to power collection, take back, sorting, processing, aggregating. We're, we're really kind of the technology and logistics and data layer that sits between retail, uh, big legacy industry, and waste management, another big legacy industry. Um, both great in their own respects and in their own lanes, both terrible with tech. Um, and so needing to be able to kind of innovate um, and, and bring sort of that uh, that innovation that, that tech often brings to, to both of those to both those industries. So um, what was it like building building Thousandfell? I mean, what was I mean? Because you you go out and you start a company, and you know I think nowadays it's arguably a little bit easier to start a brand and put up a website and you know even do a three D rendering of a product and start selling stuff. But then you actually have to make the thing. So what yeah, was that like? It was a total labor of love. So so um, the the idea started here when my co founder and I. Uh, uh, we're in New York, and we're like, all right, we wanna we wanna channel and build on this sustainability movement that's happening in retail. It feels it feels like the time is right. There's an appetite for this, maybe for the first time ever. Um, and and so, what does sustainability really mean? And and that started with you know what we were seeing in the market. It's material innovation. Um, you know, it's reducing waste in the beginning of the supply chain. And ultimately, the conversation led like, well, does it really matter if we're cutting? Five percent, ten percent material usage. If all of that's going to landfill anyway, um, and short answer was no. So it's like, all right. So we need nothing to ever go to landfill. All right. So like, what does that then look like? That means collecting product back. That means recycling into new product. That then means building products that can be recycled with materials that can be recycled that can be pulled apart. Um, and we're like, hey, like we know footwear. Like let's like let's tackle snap tackle sneakers first. They're also a high frequency basic. So like. The first user, I'm like excluding the sneakerheads out there that are like holding, buying, and reselling Jordans. But um, for the most part, the first user is the last user, right? Like your running shoes are yours, and then they're done. Um, and so that was really interesting. There wasn't like a resale market market for for basic footwear, and so like this is a perfect product category to pilot this. Um, I will say we in like 2017, 2018, we were crazy people. We were like, yeah, like everything's going to be recycled. No one's going to throw anything away. And people are like, dude, get out of here. Um, and so that was that was part of it. And the other part of it was like this. And another camp was like, great, let's see you actually make that. Um, and so we went to a, to our footwear network um, first with with Johnny over in China, and then you know trade wars and like the craziness of of international manufacturing and ultimately led us to Brazil to do a lot of our manufacturing. Um, and the story that I often tell is that the factory that we work with is fantastic. They're amazing. But the development process was probably 2x or 3x as long as they're used to, right? Um, and, and so we'd sourced all of these materials from all over the world uh, to make that we knew were recyclable componentry to componentry. We had kind of pulled it together in a prototype and we were getting it ready for, you know, at scale production. And we kept failing strength testing, right? Like you want it to be, you know, usable for 2.5 million steps. You want it to, you know, good abrasion, good tear, all of that. Um, you also want it to be able to be pulled apart. And so uh, at the end of life, when you're done with it. 
Um, and so that we had to like kind of strike that balance. And there were multiple phone calls that I had with, and we kept failing these strength tests. Factory owner would call me up and be like, hey, Stuart, listen, like material blew out, didn't work. Um, but I've got this other material. It's like a small batch of leather. And I'm like, dude, I can't recycle leather. Like I need, no, that's not, a, that's not an answer for us. Um, and, and fortunately the factory kind of stuck with us and, and we were able to build a product that we could pull apart. Um, but it, but it took a long time. Uh, and we've been more deliberate with sort of our material and our, and our product development as a result, right? Like we haven't blown it out and done a hundred different SKUs with a, a bunch of different fabrications because when we do introduce something new, it's got to check the box to be recyclable. Um, and that requires, that requires real kind of development. So, um, a lot of like coalition building with existing mm -hmm. players. Cause I was, I was thinking a lot about that just kind of product development space. I mean, you look at almost the, you can take the fashion industry, but you also take just even the electronic and product industry. It's more, you know, more is better, you know, quote unquote, more SKUs, more things for people to buy and they'll keep coming. But there's almost like this bell curve of people actually dropping off. And one of the stories I usually bring up is the fact of the first few versions of the iPhone there were only one of the very first one and there were only like two of the second one. Yeah. And so you just had this like almost like you have to buy one of these two. And it was such an intentional process. Like, do you think that it's, I don't know, it's like this balance between like, are you willing to cater to the consumer who just is going to say, I want this, I want that, I want this, I want that, not knowing what the full cycle is versus saying, no, we're going to give you this because we know this is actually probably what you want. Um, you just don't know it yet. And I think you know, what was that balance strike for you? Because I think that is part of like building a brand. If they're like, you don't have enough options, maybe they don't come back. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so there's two things I'll say to that. One is the, in taking this a little different, the design challenge that we had was that um, sustainable meant a certain thing to the consumer. It meant like hemp and like, unfinished and really earthy um and and most people i mean some people some people do really resonate with that style but most didn't and so we really wanted to get a product into the hands and into the closets of of you know the average consumer so we had to design a product that looked and felt and performed you know like you know what they had expected sort of in the market so like elevating that bar um almost this like stealth sustainability, if you will. Um, and so that was one component of it. And so I, you know, I think we checked the box there. Um, the second, to your point, is about repeat and about, you know, that oftentimes newness drives, you know, new purchases, which um, I, I really appreciate the slow fashion movement. But I also am looking at kind of the consumer market and like, you look at the biggest retail businesses, and they are fast fashion or factory direct and like the supply chain is only getting faster. Um, and, and the markets that those companies are going after, it's you know, not just the US and Western Europe, it's a lot of Latin America, a lot of Africa, a lot of Asia, a lot of India. So like, you know, I, I just think that you're having this like rising global middle class and like they're gonna want access to, to new style and to newness. Um, and so, you know, ours was like, listen, you know, we're not going to offer the newness in, in silhouettes. We do new colors. We do, you know, we do some new styles when, um, you know, on a fair cadence. Ours was more like, how do we make sure that this is the everyday shoe that you always have fresh and clean and ready to go? 
and the take back portion of that was huge. Um, so our repeat rate for the super circle biz or for the thousand file business is, is incredible. It's like 35, 40%, which is like insane. Um, and it's on three, three silhouettes. And the reason for that is take back. We're like, you're done with your shoot. Great. Send it back to us. We'll give you 20 bucks credit to the next one. Um, and, and make it super easy for you to, to kind of roll in and, and replace what, what, what you already have. Um, so that's, that's been huge as well. And I think, you know, especially having launched super circle and being able to now power take back and collection and recycling for other businesses, the things that we're talking to teams about is the newness is great. Like, you know, if you're going to launch new stuff, people want new style, it's personal expression. It like taps into the zeitgeist in this like magical way. Um, uh, how do we think about designing that stuff for, for recycling and for circularity? Um, and how do we make sure that when we are producing new, there's this safety net so that it doesn't just trickle out and go into, go into landfill and, and most of the time international landfill at that, which is like even worse from an impact point of view. Um, yeah. Well, and I think you hit on two really important points there. One being, I mean, almost that stealthy approach to sustainability. I mean, I think, you know, if you if you have options, like it needs to perform just the same. I mean, we talk about that a lot at GOAT. It's this idea that if it's going to be a replacement, it has to perform at the same level, if not better, for anybody to adopt it. But also, how do you make it where it's almost not even like a check-the-box type of thing for the consumer? Instead, it's like, I would like to buy this, and on the back end of it, the whole thing is is still the mindful purchase that I think everybody wants to be able to make. But maybe they don't have the brain power to do the research if it truly is circular. They don't want to do the brain power of like, hey, what do I have to do with this or a bunch of extra steps? Like, I just want to wear a shirt. I want to put on a pair of shoes. Um, and I think that when we start to remove some of those barriers, then it becomes a little bit easier for the person at the end of the day to, to make that decision. And that's why I love what you're doing at Super Circle because you're almost building it just into the supply chain of like how how to just make it more circular around the whole concept. And so when you start to look at like, was this born out of kind of the thousand fell need and realizing like you guys kind of op optimized it on the thousand fell and were kind of like, well, a lot of other people can benefit for this or was it seeing what other brands and consumers were doing and you're like, Hey, we, we kind of need to fix this. Like where did that kind of stem from? Yeah. So uh, uh, that's a great question. The, the thing I want to say to, to kind of lead off and what we talk about internally is like at some point, with sustainability, the sustainability movement with circularity, the passengers can't fly the airplane. Like they can tell you where they want to go, but like the brands need to take the reins and 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 drive this thing. So how do you make it easy? The customer, to, I mean, I hate it when I get on panels and they're like, how do we know? And I'm like, you should do more in-depth research into like where they're sourcing their polyamide. Like, no, like that is... The onus of that on the customers is insane. It, it really needs to fall onto the brand um, to, to do that legwork and make it really easy for the customer to participate. Um, and, and I think that we're getting to that inflection point where, where brands are starting to do that. When it comes to Super Circle, what we recognized was, you know, if we launched a footwear brand, and let's say it went as well as it possibly could, let's say Thousandfell got as big as Nike. We were doing like $40 billion in revenue a year, and we were like took over an entire city of Beaverton, like uh, what, what impact would that have on, on the overall, you know, fashion sector? Is it like 
0.5%? Would we have you know, 1% of, of products made? Um, and and like how much of an impact is that really going to have? Uh, so we always knew that the whatever solution we were ultimately going to kind of kind of gun gun for, it needed to be able to be you know in like for the entire industry. Um, now, in 2018, the industry was not ready for like supply chain technology and like trade in programs and like recycling tech. Um, and my co-founder Chloe came from Gap, and we we used Gap as our case study. We'd be like, "Would anybody in Gap buy this right now?" And the answer was like, "Absolutely not." Like, no. Uh, it's like, well, what would make them buy it? It's like, well, we got to have some case studies that this actually works. We need to show that this is actually a revenue driver for business for for brands and for businesses. That it's customer engagement, and customer loyalty, uh, and so that's the reason why we launched Thousandfell. We like we needed to prove this out. Um, and it did the things we thought it would do. It, it built customer engagement. It built loyalty. It like, you know, increased community. Repeat revenue went up. Um, giving credit was actually a fantastic mechanism for get, getting people to come back, uh, and and not just say like, you know what, like maybe I'll go try Adidas this time. Like no, like stick with the brand. Like we we value you. And when we talk about this internally too, it's like I would way rather pay my customer. An acquis like an acquisition or a retention cost, then I would pay, you know, a marketing platform. Um, and you know, when we when we explain that to brands now, I, I think marketers are very savvy um, and and, and kind of resonate with that. Um, so so to, just to kind of like put a bow on that, no, it was definitely meant for the entire industry. Now, what what I think is interesting is early on we were like is it designing for manufacturing or designing for recycling is it manufacturing for recycling is it material like what is it that we can we can scale um, and in running the thousand felt business we realized take back the technology being able to track and trace being able to issue credits being able to sort you know buy feed for recyclers being able to build this network of recyclers recyclers are super specialized they do like just cotton or they do just poly or do they do just, they do just rubber really difficult, huge, huge onus. And the volume difference is, is huge. And we, we talk a lot about this to our brand partners and teams that have tried to do this, what they come to us and say is like, yeah, the minimums are like 40,000 pounds of like fresh, you know, perfectly sorted processed cotton. And we've got 20,000 t-shirts, like that should be enough, right? It's like you need the volume difference is, is very different. So enabled to like aggregate that cross brand is really unlocked um, kind of some of those those doors or the pathway from retailers to uh, to the waste management industry. So um, we really ID'd that and started to build the technology that and the relationships and the network that we had to like kind of cobble together very painstakingly on the back end for Thousand Fell. So really did a, in, inform a lot on on what went into Super Circle. Well, I think I think that's a huge thing to be able to do though because. You know the the bigger brands may not want to spend the time or have the budget to to want to go into that but i think one of the things you mentioned is that you know it it was profitable and like i think that a lot of people forget that uh your waste cycle is technically a liability um and i, I talk about this on panels as well it's like you have this side of the the consumer like their responsibility it may be just like take a little bit of a beat and just think for a sec but you shouldn't have to do the research. So it's like, if you think more intentionally about something or more circularly about how you're going to use it or um, think a little bit more about the communal aspect of that product that you're about to purchase, that's about the extent of what, you know, I think you can expect the consumer to have to do. 
um, they don't have to do the research. And, and, and that's where it speaks to the brands. And, and when you guys are providing a, a stream for them to be able to just kind of almost plug and play, um, it improves their whole process, but also it, it gives them more, less of a cost that they have to spend to acquire a new customer. You get that loyalty back. And you're also saving on the waste side because you're able to more circularly produce things. And I think as we start to frame sustainability more in terms of intentionality, circularity, and community, it's dropping that word sustainability because it's more just how do you operate as a business? Because at the end of the day, it's just being more efficient. And I don't know if like people talk about that enough. It's just efficiency at the end of the day. It's how do you just make something that self-feeds itself that isn't relying on a bunch of outside things? Yeah, that's... So there's three things there that I think we talk a lot about um, and, and we try to live, you know, in practice. Um, the, the first is, and that we've identified, is what brands are really great at. So they're great at designing, manufacturing, and marketing. Like, that's, that's what they do. Um, and they do that incredibly well. What they kind of suck at is the tech and the logistics piece. They outsource all of that, right? Um, and, and that's, that's fine. You don't have to be like a master of everything that you do within your business. And so we, what we want to do is be able to come in with the technology and the logistics to make it really easy and turnkey. They're like, Hey, look, like you outsource your fulfillment. Like that makes sense. You guys aren't, aren't logistics experts. Like why would you build this in house? Like it's incredibly onerous to do that. Focus on what you do best and like, let us inform some of that design decision around circularity and designing for circularity. But let us take the, the, the brunt of the technology um, and the logistics off your plate and make it make it really easy um, in turnkey, which which, you know, I, I think Super Circle is doing is doing pretty well. Um, so where did that land for you just in terms of as a, as a person? I mean, you you know, you go to you go to China and you start to get your, you know, not to put a pun in, but get your feet wet with actually like building a shoe company. But then you're going into more of a data company and plugging in logistics. I mean, I know that's part of building Thousandfell, but like as a founder, how did you navigate that? Because I think a lot of times, like, you know, I think hindsight 2020, you're like, ah, well, we just kind of built this thing. But like, it was probably a super rocky road as it mostly is for a lot of people. Like, how did you kind of endure some of those things or or what were some of the things that were like, oh my God, are we going to make it? Yeah. Um, Neither Chloe or I come from, my co-founder for, for Thousandfell, come from the tech side. We've worked within like tech businesses generally, but um, we come from retail. So the first thing we did is we were like, we need a CTO. And we didn't really even know what that meant. We just know we needed someone that knew technology better than we did. Um, and we went on a huge CTO hunt and we, we found our third co-founder for Super Circle this way. Fung Nguyen, he was you know, the former you know, VP of engineering at, at Gilt Group and one of the co-founders there, he was the CTO at Luminary, someone that had built technology for retail. Um, and so that was like critically important for us. Um, and then we all essentially locked ourselves in a room. It's like, this is what we're thinking. Like, how do we, Fung, can we build this? What does this look like? What sort of architecture do we need? Um, and we were able to kind of map out the next like two or three years into like roughly, roughly what we thought. Um, we needed to build. And like a lot of that was informed by Thousandfell. It's like, all right, we know the systems more or less for the customer side. We know the systems that we need for the brand side. We know what we need from like a warehouse management side. And so we, we started really building that. Um, and, and that was centered around footwear, which again is its own product category. Uh, 
the second big component was like, was, would anybody buy this and does anybody need this? Um, and it was actually the Reformation team that we kind of went to first. Um, you know, they're really well known for uh, the work that they're doing around impact and sustainability. They're also like a beloved brand and a cult brand in their own right. Um, and their team is like about it. Um, they, they are actually doing the hard work and, and we connected um, with three women on their team, Kathleen Talbot, Beba Greer, um, and Carrie Friedman. And we're like, hey, um, you know, we, you know, we know you guys have a take back program. We've been talking to your team about potentially like footwear and some of the sustainable footwear and circular footwear you guys are trying to design. Like, what would you want in an ideal system? And they were like, this is everything. We need this, 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 and this. And this is what's really important to us. Um, and we sat with their team and I'll be forever grateful, like embedded with them and essentially built what we would need for another client. Um, and, and a lot of that's been like, they've informed a lot of the work that we've done on the technology side and they are, uh, I give them credit, like very bold when it comes to, um, experimentation and innovation. Um, and so everything that, that we've really built, we've, we've also piloted and tested or gut checked at the very least with the ref team. And it's, they're like, we're like, Hey, you know, you guys are thinking about integrating different feeds. How do we, how do we think about that? What are you actually going to want to see? Do you want offtake agreements with recyclers? Do you not? Hey, you guys have a store fleet. Like we want customers to be able to trade in in store. What does that experience look like for store staff? What does it look like for, for customers? And, and, you know, they've been a fantastic thought partner. Um, and now we're, we're at a stage where we're starting to roll this out with like very large enterprise brands that have, um, you know, again, a much larger customer base. They've been around a lot longer. They've got a much larger store footprint. So instead of, you know, 30 stores, we're talking hundreds of stores. Um, and, and it gives us really the confidence to be able to kind of build on that, on that early success. Um, the data side is really interesting. It, it, it's really been a reverse engineering problem. Uh, and, and it's been doing a lot of work with recyclers to understand what they need and why post-consumer streams or pre-consumer streams, finished garments, haven't been able to work with those systems. Um, and really what it comes down to is fiber identification, clean fiber, and being able to turn a finished garment into usable fiber stock for the recycling process. And so we then just went down the line and like just tried to problem solve it and, and kind of met in the middle between what brands want and what recyclers need um, to build a system that way. And I think where that ultimately netted us was um, a, a lot of whiteboard sessions with a lot of like hand gestures, it's like this thing that we're building is kind of like this. Um, and like a lot of, a lot of thinking around, uh, around ultimately what became super circle. And at the core of it is, is, you know, a digital twin technology, more or less it's, you know, a unique digital widget that is appended to a physical product um, through our system uh, that holds product information and um, and can have product information added to it throughout the entire reverse logistics journey. Whether that's you know working with teams that are using digital tags to append some of that product information on the physical garment to being able to tie in with you know bill of materials, BOMs, and product lifecycle management tools to actually being able to track that through the entire, you know, reverse logistics system through our facilities. Um, and what that ultimately leaves us with is ultimate, you know, garment provenance. We know 
every single item that comes back. We know exactly when and it hit the facility, where it came from. We know the feed that it goes to. We know when it hit those feeds. We know how it was processed. And then we can turn around to, to a recycler and say like, hey, here is a thousand pounds to baled to spec of exactly what you need in order to run your process. So it's really been this, this like metaphorical alchemy of a, of a product back into, back into fiber stock and then the technology and logistics and systems to kind of build it, um, which has been the approach. How, how important was it for you to kind of experiment? Cause I think one of the things that, that we talk about a lot is, is this idea of progress, not perfection, because nothing's going to be perfect. I mean, even for the recycler standpoint or the brand perspective, it's not a perfect solution for either one of them, but it's a meet in the middle kind of process. How important is that when you start like thinking more circularly about things? Cause I think a lot of people, when it comes to a sustainable mindset or a circular mindset, they're kind of like, it's all or nothing. Either you're on the team or you're off the team. No, it's been huge. And, and I think the thing that's been really beneficial is for thousand fell on, you know, being an R and D center for us, right? Like we own the brand, we can make all the mistakes. We knew our intention. If it didn't work, like we didn't have an angry customer on the phone, it was us. Um, and so we could learn from that. So like we, we were able to use ourselves as our own kind of guinea pigs there um, to, uh, uh, to, to, to learn a lot. Um, and then the second part of that too has also been, uh, you know, how do we iterate on, on what we currently have? Um, and, you know, the, the thing that's really interesting here is, is, you know, as we've gone to market, like Thousand Fells of four or five year old brand, um, we have all of our product specs, all of our BOMs like on file digitized. We've now gone to market and we have partners that have been around since the 80s, the 70s. And they're like, we've got BOM files like in a filing cabinet in the basement, you know, in our, in our like, our, do we have to digitize these? So it's, it's, you know, a lot of these solutions have also come from having to work within the constraints of, of some of our brand partners. Um, and so what we wanted to do is we wanted to come up with a solution that could work immediately today with all legacy product on the market, um, as well as new product that was being manufactured. And the brands on our platform, you know, not all of them are like 100% as, as what I would call circular, right? Where it's fiber to fiber recycling, like this cotton t-shirt's going back into cotton yarn that can go, go into a new product. Um, but what our data dashboard allows us to do is report back to brands, you know, these end of life feeds, you know, what went into fiber to fiber, which recycler did it go to? Do you want to set up an off-take agreement? Here's the connection there to do that, to put that back into new, new fiber. What didn't make it into fiber to fiber? What had to go into open loop recycling or downcycling? What, you know, had to go waste to energy because it was just a total mess and couldn't fit within recycling infrastructure. And then why? And what were like the impediments here? And then how do we inform what we're making next season? Um, how are we switching out, you know, materials, component parts? How are we rethinking fabrication? Um, so it's definitely an iterative process. And what we're hoping to see when brands join our platform is like, you come to us, let's say it's 15% of your assortments fiber to fiber. Um, great, like that's where we're gonna start. And like what we hope to see over the next couple of years and couple of seasons is that that 15% goes to 50%. Um, and that's informed by, by, you know, like on the ground, what's being recycled, what can be recycled, the recycling technology out there. 
Well, and that's what we talk about too, is that, you know, the bigger the ship, the longer it takes to turn it. Um, and I think a lot of people think it's going to be a light switch and it's like for some brands it can't be, um, because you have, you have jobs, you have infrastructure, you have, it's literally a livelihood for some people. And it's like, despite them wanting to shift, it's not, you can't just be like tomorrow, we're just going to do fire to fire and all these things. Like there's so many logistical pieces that are involved that do you think the consumer, so we, we always say brands should just be honest about it. Just be like, Hey, here's where we're at. We're trying and we're making improvement. Here's, you know, super circles or dashboard to show that we're actually doing better. Um, do you think it's kind of on the brand to just be transparent about it? Be like, look, we know we're not perfect, but we're trying here. I, I think so. And I think that, um, I think that a lot of, a lot of these big brands, big, big brands have very smart people internally that are trying to, trying to solve this problem. And it's, it's a really meaty one. So like an example that I always give is like a lot of these businesses that have staple fiber with like cotton, et cetera, are putting like, are buying futures on cotton because they use so much for eight, 10 years out, like to move that supply chain and migrate that supply chain. And some of them have, you know, pattern commitments five years out, like in order to really think about cost, um, that's, that's, that's a slow shift to turn. Um, but, but people are actively inside trying to do that. I think, I think that's a hard message to communicate to a consumer and like, a digestible bite. So I understand the reticence to do that, but yeah, I, I think so. And I think, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's what we're excited about too, is that the work that super circle is doing on the data and reporting side can be used internally for teams to kind of benchmark themselves. It can be reported up to executive leaders. It can be reported out to investors, but it can also be used by marketing teams to be able to show progress. Um, and, and, the waste management industry just hasn't been built like that in the past. Um, and it's hard to really understand where your stuff is going. Um, for everyone listening, like the, the, the baseline has been like, you call a guy and he's like, yeah, I can make this stuff disappear. And you're like, okay. He's like, don't worry about it. Like that's, that's been the solution. And like, it's, it's, it's that sophisticated. Um, and we're like, this is not tenable for anybody. Um, so how do we, how do we, Transparent. How do we how do we provide data? And then when there's confidence in the data, then brands can can be really transparent about about what's happening. So I think that what we're going to see in the next three to five years is going to be a massive paradigm shift. Um, and and I liken it very similar to you know retail isn't the most disruptive and innovative industry in the world, but there have been some big big you know sea changes um, in the past 20, 20, 30 years. You know, direct to consumer and e-com has been one of them. You talk to people that have been in retail, like that have seen like the pre and post of that, and it was like a massive change. And I, and I'm sensing sort of a similar inertia with this change towards circularity and this change towards towards recycling and sustainability, which is going to be really exciting. And maybe this is a question more up like on the thousand fell end, but how does that work in terms of I don't know retail and and apparel? I've always viewed as it's almost like it's like the one industry that I think would always need a brick and mortar kind of concept because you don't know how something's going to fit. You don't know if it's going to be the right fit for you. How does that work in the e-com side specifically when it comes to like the shipping back and the, just the dealing of stock from that perspective? Cause some of you are like, Oh, those looked great on the model, but then I put them on and I was like, Oh yeah. no, those, these aren't for me. And they look terrible. Yeah. No, I, I do think, 
I've always been a big, there was, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago where uh, the, the move was like, oh, we're going to be digital, totally digital as, as an industry in like years. And like, I just, you know, I, I think there's a place for try on. I mean, clothing is this physical thing. You want to be able to experience it. Um, what we're seeing too is like, can we leverage that, those store fleets also as, as places for people to come and bring back their worn clothing and immediately transact there. Um, on the shipping side, that's something we've definitely had to tackle. So we offer, Super Circle offers parcel trade-in. I'm gonna put air quotes around that, parcel trade-in. Um, effectively, what we built though, and when people think about parcel, they think about the two-day shipping that Amazon has has kind of pioneered in the industry, right? Like get, get anything in two days, which um, for, for, for uh, you know, transparency purposes means throwing it onto a jet and then just like shooting it across the country, right? Um, which is not environmentally sustainable, and, and the cost is 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 relatively high. Um, and and the consumer might not always see that cost. Sometimes it's absorbed in, in just like SRP, but that's very real. Um, and, and returns are very much the same thing. And so what we had to rethink is the customers used to this parcel um, kind of. A, experience dropping things off putting a shipping label on it how do we leverage or or um you know build on that customer behavior but do it in a way that's more sustainable and really cost effective so we essentially built a hub and spoke style model here in the u.s and in canada where it's parcel the first leg but it hits a regional facility and then we can do overpacks and and line haul by by freight um and and the difference here is uh, for returns, like full price returns, brands want that back in stock. They want QA. They want to be able to resell it to a customer that's actually going to going to keep it. It's very different for end of life and recycling. Like there is no other customer on the other end of that. So we can take four weeks to get an item back, um, and we can really slow the shipping down. It's more environmentally friendly. The cost is a lot better. Um, so that's that's kind of how we've thought about that. And then what we've layered on there is store collection and store drop off. So we can leverage LTL, less than truckload, you know, shipping networks. Um, we can, you know, have stores be depots essentially for collection, and then we can further kind of drop drop that collection cost. So really thinking about ways um, to reduce that shipping. And then the next stage there is how do we start to regionalize a lot of these facilities? So we have on, on the Super Circle side, we have two of those two facilities up and running, almost a third. Um, and we're about to roll out another three through partnerships, um, you know, over the next quarter and a half, you know, so that we're in kind of the main hotspots across across North America. Um, and that also helps. That helps from the environmental impact point of view. It helps from a cost point of view. Um, so it's and it also helps us from a capacity point of view. We can do a, do a lot more. We can probably process close to half a million units a week now. But um, if you think about kind of the larger mass market brands, they're going to need millions and millions and millions of units processed a month when this is up to scale. So um, being able to scale capacity really quickly there too is, has been a priority. Oh, that's that. Yeah, that's huge. Uh, one and where does, where does the line sit for the consumer? Cause I mean, end of life is great. You know, get 20 bucks back thousand fell credit towards new pair, but that also takes, a buy-in from the customer and an education of like, here, here are your options. So where does that piece roll in? Cause I mean, some people are just like, ah, well, shirt's torn, throw in the garbage. Yeah. So 
the incentive mechanism, there's two things that we're really trying to to do here. And and you just like called out our biggest competitor, which is the trash can, right? Um, super easy. It's in your house. You can do it whenever you want. You just walk into the street and you're it's over. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to um, compete in some degree on convenience and we're trying to win on incentive. So the idea is how do we make this as easy as possible for you to drop off and return in? Like if you're going to stores and you're going to shop anyway, just, just take this with you. Super easy, drop it off where you are. If you're running to, to UPS or FedEx or USPS and doing returns or Canada Post in, in Canada, great. Like leverage leverage that sort of standard standard chore. Uh, and there's some other you know creative things that we're gonna be rolling out in the next couple quarters to kind of meet customers and consumers where they are. Um, and then the credits, the big ones, like we want to make it a, a reasonable, like not, not 50 cents, but like five, 10, 15 bucks for you to, for you to do it. Um, and, and can we incentivize behavior that way? And, you know, the, the study we always point to is that when, you know, municipal recycling first kind of came onto the scene, there was the five, 10 cent credit for cans and bottles. And that drives massive adoption. Um, it takes like adoption from like 20% to like 95%, right? There's like real, it's real value. We want to teach, and we want to teach customers that there's value in the fiber there too. Whether or not the commodity market on the back end is like on par with the cost of process, that's a whole other conversation. But um, for the customer, we want to we want to communicate that. Yeah, and where do you feel the market is? going because i mean obviously it's going more circular it's going more thought around materials and stuff but let's just say i don't know five years the consumer's like you know what uh this sustainability thing is kind of meh i don't know um where do, where does it land if that's the case like i mean you can obviously because you're planning you know three four or five years in advance on a lot of things and you're even seeing it start to pop up a little bit having to do with evs of being like well, is this going to be the only solution? And it's like, oh, well, no, there could actually be more solutions. So where does that kind of land in the in the fashion industry? So I think that when we look at it, a recycling tech stack or a recycling logistics stack is going to be table stakes for starting or for running a retail business. I'm obviously very biased, but that's what I think. In the same way that like you wouldn't launch a new, a new brand and not have an e-com site. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, our goal is to make it as easy and turnkey to do that as it becomes more and more table stakes there. Um, and I think for the consumer, our goal is to make it as easy as possible for them to participate in, in these events, regardless of if they care about the sustainability element or not. And, and to be honest with you, I don't think it should be on the consumer to to care, really. I think it should be on the brand to run good business. Um, and part of that's environmental stewardship and part of that is you know deeper engagement with customers. I think the interesting thing here too that we talk a lot about is that when brands interact with their customer, they typically interact up until the point of sale. And maybe they'll shoot you like a customer survey, email or text and be like, hey, how is that shirt that you bought? Do you like it? Rate us five stars. Um, and that's it. And like, that's the, that's the stop point. But the customer is engaging with you as the brand every single day they're putting on clothing. Um, and, and that's when they're like 
you know, forming their opinion of you and the product and how it makes them feel. And there's this really unique opportunity with end of life to be on that journey with the customer um, and, and authentically engage on how the product's performing, when they're ready to take it back. The other thing that we, that, that, you know, we've seen here too is that customers are typically the least in love with your product like the last time they wear it, they're like, shit, these jeans just ripped. Like this sucks. Or like these shoes are wrecked. Like I've worn through them. Can the brand be there um, as an advocate for their product to say like, we, we know the products are going to have an end of life. Like we're here to take it back. We're here to be that, that, that product partner with you ultimately. So I do think that that relationship with, with consumers and um, you know, the brands is going to, it's going to change and producers that's what we're noticing is um and and not specifically in the fashion space but really a lot of other spaces it's it's joining like bringing the consumer into the conversation saying like hey let's give you a peek behind the curtain here's what we do and and tell that story to be like yeah we're we're, we're also wearing the same jeans when we go to work um yeah. like we we put on shoes we do the same thing and i think um humanizing brands a little bit more is is hugely important because um it can be a big brand but it's all made up of people at the end of the day and that's i think what we try and do at goat is is try and just tell that story from like saying what it is and and i think people are more accepting of that process and you know i i think one of the things when i was a kid uh my mom whenever she got to go to Nordstrom, for example. She was like, well, why go there? And I was like, well, because after you make a purchase, they walk around the counter and they hand you the bag. And this was like when I was super young. And it was like, it was like that small little thing actually stood out enough that it was like, I want to go back there again. And it was because there was some sort of relationship builder there. And I think, you know, you could say through the e-com, through everything that we, we kind of lost that touch. But I think... We're, we as people are kind of wanting that back again and, and how that looks is completely different than what it used to be, but how can we build those relationships of kind of relationships 2.0, so to speak? Yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, and I, you know, I think that, that when there's like such a clamoring for attention, like customer attention or just like the average person's attention, being able to do that in an authentic way is like really important um, and showing up and caring and like, you know, so we, we really see that uh, that you can accomplish that through through circularity and through recycling. Mm-hmm. From from your side, just what was it like building a company? I mean, I I, I think um, you know entrepreneurship. I think is very I don't know put on a pedestal these days. It's kind of like ah, gonna do this, um, yeah. but not realizing like what actually is involved. Or, or just like the process that it takes and how long it takes. And what was that process like for you? Just, just learning it. Cause I mean, there, there isn't really a book for entrepreneurship. You didn't know how to build a shoe company. You didn't know how to build a tech company. What did that look like for you to learn? I think, um, I think the way that I try to distill this is that I'm super passionate about something. I had enough, enough experience that I, I thought I could make it work. But I also had a healthy amount of ignorance to not know all of the pitfalls that were like around the corner and or two or three years down the road. And I think that's a good thing. I think that like if if and you hear founders on like the back end of like a 15 year like company build and they're like, 
I knew what I knew today, I wouldn't have started it. Um, and like, that's, but then the company wouldn't be here. And like, you know, you wouldn't have made the impact in the world that you made. And I think, um, I think that like healthy amount of ignorance is a good thing um, or an ability to kind of think differently. I think um, it, it does require a lot of you to start a company. And I think that that's what I kind of underestimated. Like I always knew I could work hard. It's like, yeah, like I'll, I'll log a bunch of hours. Like, great, no problem. I can do that. I've done that in the past. Um, but it, it, if you're not ready for it to kind of consume, you know, the lion's share of, of, of your mind share, then like that, you know, that, that, can be, that can be surprising or that can catch people off guard. Um, like I live and breathe these two companies. That's that. And I, this is going to sound like so, so cheesy. Uh, but that's, it's what, it's where I spend all my time. It's what I think about. Like when I have free time, I'm constantly thinking about this business. And when things are going well, I'm like wildly elated and am like the happiest person ever. And when they're not going well, like the lows are pretty low. You're like, Shit, the world's the world's ending, um, and I and I think I think that's something that I've I've a skill that I've kind of had to learn how to like you know there are these massive highs and lows how do you ride that that pretty pretty even keel right um, it's never as good as you think it is or it's never as bad as you think it is I, I think the other element here too that um, is and you know I'm borrowing this from someone else so I can't I can't like pretend that I'm like you know, this oracle of entrepreneurship, but um, it's people talk about resilience and what that actually means. And, you know, oftentimes the people that are really successful are the ones that just keep showing up and just keep grinding at it. Um, and listen, like there's, there's, you know, that's not to be, you know, insensitive to the people that have that founders that have to shut companies down, but um, you know, there's a resilience and a tenacity um, that, that I've, I've kind of had to learn to cultivate and just like, problem solve, run through walls. And um, it is super difficult. Like no one's just going to like roll out the red card and be like, this idea is amazing. Let's make this super easy for you to just execute your vision for, for the world. It's a lot. And, and what we've gotten pretty good at, I think our team uh, has been able to get people bought into that vision and to be able to kind of punch above our weight when we need to and beg, borrow and steal when we need to um, in order to get things done. Um, so, so, so that's, that's one, one portion of it too. And I think, um, I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, like, uh, an aversion for authority. I, I also like, don't be like, I don't mind being told no. And I also don't mind people looking at me being like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard and not actually internalizing that. Um, and, and you, you get this a lot if you're in sort of like the venture space or you're raising capital, right? A little different from maybe like fundraisers that are, or for, for founders that are bootstrapping. But when you do go out to market, like you're kind of putting your idea and your business on display for like very smart people to evaluate and to look at. Um, and like the, the adage is like, you're going to get a hundred no's for one yes. And you're like, all right, okay, whatever. Like I'll, I'll, I can talk to a hundred people. The, the thing that they don't tell you is like when you're like at no 88 and the person's like this is the 88th person in a row to tell you this is the dumbest thing they've ever heard of you not to be like is this the dumbest thing that's ever been out there so like you know so it's you, <laughs> there and listen we've had i've had those like reckonings in those moments too um and you know 
we're not like totally insane, but you have to be a little bit. You have to be a little bit to be like really confident in kind of what you're building. And I think, um, so I think that's been a learned skill too. And and I think it gets easier the the longer you're in it because you start building advocates, and then those advocates bring advocates around the business, and then it, it's kind of that ripple effect. But um, you know, especially in those early days. Uh, when you're when you're just starting out, it feels like you you and your founding team kind of against the world. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I might have gotten no that. no. I I find that so interesting because I mean it. I often say you have to you almost have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable um, because that's almost like an eternal state of being, um, especially in like especially in the beginning years. But even I mean, established companies, you can have curveballs just come that you're like that could completely destroy a business i mean the the problems never stop um it's your willingness to be able to to step back and solve the problem in in like either a more methodical way you're not as affected by the lows or the highs you just kind of ride this constant wave um but with what i find just so interesting about it is you can the the common trend with most founders and whether that's a company that's wildly successful whether that's a company that's just riding the wave whether that's a company that's just starting, you do have this sense of like ignorance. It's like you have this thing that is in the back of your mind that's like this this is valuable. People need this. And and it's I I think it's different than, oh, I'm just gonna start a company and do this and make a bunch of money. It's it's that thing inside of you that says, No, this has to happen because the world needs this. Um, it suddenly isn't about the you, it's about the the end goal. And I think that's kind of one of the more important things to hit on is that it's it's such an internal push that you have to do it that there's no other way forward but what you're doing. And I think that speaks more to the resiliency of it. Yeah, and I think I think the thing that gets us up in the morning, I mean, we love, I, I, like, I have the best job in the world. I love it. Um, and it's just so, it's so fun. And I get to do it with people that I absolutely love and respect, which, which makes it all the better. Um, but for us, we're a mission-driven company. Um, and not to knock on like all like any other technologies but like we're not just like trying to send more emails more efficiently right or we're not you know whatever it is like we really think that what we're doing is going to is going to lead to meaningful large scale change environmental change um you know and and that's that's hugely empowering um so it helps you kind of kind of punch through some of the some of the low times or some of the some of the impediments the other thing that I think about a lot is there's an investor of ours that's really wise and articulate, um, and I aspire to be there one day. But he said, listen, like, in 10 years, what you're going to do is you're going to, like, look back on your company, and you're going to just draw a straight line from where you were all the way up. And you're going to be like, you know what? It was just, it was great. And people have a tendency to do that. They, like, you listen to these, like, founding stories and, like, yeah, you know, and then we hit a billion dollars in revenue and we sold and it was great. and it's like that's not that's that's the easy abridged version for the story but but what really happens is this is massive up and down and you know you need north stars like your mission to to know if you're kind of kind of going in the right way and to orient yourself but you know you're you're going to take some turns along the way and it's going to be pretty pretty bumpy um, and that's just part of of the entrepreneurial journey um, what do you kind of do to, to level yourself, um, whether that be a low point or just through the day? Cause I think, um, you know, for me, I had to learn that I had to learn some of those lessons of like, okay, 
regardless of the up and down, like what are the things that I do every day to kind of recenter myself no matter what? Because it it's so wildly important, especially when it, it doesn't get easier when the company builds, right? You have now more responsibilities, more people and more decisions and a bigger impact of every decision you make and it can be all encompassing. So how do you kind of step out of that? Yeah, I think to speak to that really quickly, uh, when people join the company, uh, especially people that have not been in like startups maybe before, um, one of the intro, uh, you know, Super Circle 101, Thousand Thought 101 is there is going to be enough work for you to do to work 24 hours a day now until the end of time. Like you're never going to be done. You're never going to be like, yeah, great. Like punch out, work for the day is done. Like there's always something else that you could do. And um, A, like you have to be able to pace yourself and you have to be able to uh, know when to like shut off and and not burn yourself out. So we've seen that happen to... Fortunately, we like try to try to really build a culture where that doesn't happen. But I've seen other founders do that. Like I've gotten to points where we've worked long, long sprints, and like at the end of it, you're just exhausted. We're trying to avoid that one, and like doing more work isn't going to help you. Isn't isn't going to help you there. The second thing has been like ruthless prioritization. Like as we've gotten bigger, more stuff tends to come our way, which is which is great. It's like an it's like an indicator that it's a healthy business where there's interest from the market. Um, but we, we have a limited bandwidth. We're not, you know, a 50,000 person team. We're, you know, a 25 person team. Um, so how do we prioritize and, and like, what is that 80, 20 rule? What's 20% of the work that's going to drive 80% of the outcome. And then for us, what, you know, as founders, what we've really started to do for our executive team and for our operating team is also help them understand what those priorities are at, at like a macro level from like an, like quarterly objective down to like, you know, the A prime priorities that we have to get done across like the different verticals of the business. And that helps. And it's interesting, like people don't want to be floundering and overwhelmed, believe it or not. Like they're not like excited for more stuff. They, they need, they, people need simplification. And, and our job is to help like protect, protect our crew and block out the stuff that's not important and get people focused with the luxury, you know, it's a luxury of focus there. So that's, that's been a, been a big focus for us as we've started to scale. Um, the, like on a personal side, like how do, how do we, you know, kind of unplug? I, I'm fortunate, like my co-founder is also, you know, my partner. Um, and so, you know, we're on the same schedule. So it's not like I, I get to see my significant other like, all the time, which is awesome. Um, so, you know, I, I also, when I'm working, I don't feel like I'm away from the, the people that are the most important to me, um, which is like, I am wildly lucky to, to be able to do that. Um, on the unplug side, I mean, I think, um, you know, the things that are important to me, like I, I grew up playing sports, it was college athlete, like I need to work out, I need to like walk, I need to, you know, get outside. Um, and that's really important. And then the other thing that like really excites me is travel. And I think, uh, I came to it late as I, as I admitted to when I was like, I hadn't really left the continent of the United States until I was like 21. Um, and, and it was like, awesome. I thought it was like the, it was like, I had, un, I had discovered this well-known secret that everybody knows, um, uh, just late in life. And, and so 
being able to go to new places. And that doesn't have to be far. It doesn't have to be exotic. But like being able to get out of my routine a little bit really helps. Um, I live in New York. So there's like I have the ability to do that. My co-founders are from the West Coast. So I get to spend a lot of time in California. Two totally different climates and environment. We're starting to have a lot more partners um, and investors in Europe. So like there's like reasons for work to get out there. But there's also like just a change in scenery, um, which is really great. So uh, those are the ways that I kind of ground ground myself and and stay rested. And I think you know, I also have an executive coach that also just recommended like this awesome retreat that she did um, uh, that I'm looking into for a week. So we'll see. Um, you know, I think I, I you know I think that there's there needs to just be time for for rest and reflection. I also think it's not just a rest bit too. Like I'm all. I talk a lot about with our team, like work-life integration. Like I don't, I, and granted I'm the founder. So like, and I just told you that this is everything that I do. This is like my life. So there's a lot of work-life integration. Um, but, um, but, but, but how do you kind of, you know, integrate things seamlessly that way? Anyway, um, that's kind of how I tend to tackle it. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really important because I don't know. I always found that when I, when I step away, um, even if it's for a walk or dip in the lake or ocean, whatever it is, I also find actually clarity around some of the problems I'm trying to solve. Cause sometimes those problems get bigger and bigger. And if you just sit at the desk longer and you're like, Oh, I'm going to solve it. It doesn't always get solved. And, and sometimes that stepping away, you, you allow the brain to kind of process some of those solutions and it's where some of the breakthroughs end up coming. It's just from stepping away. Um, and I think that balance is what a lot of entrepreneurs do miss is that you can go at it 24 seven, but it's not necessarily going to be in the right direction because you need to be able to step back to see where on the map are you actually going? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when you're, I mean, where do you kind of find your biggest, I don't know, I, I think as an entrepreneur, right, you go through these stages where someone's like, wow, I didn't see that coming. That's amazing. You must've seen, you know, the future coming and amazing. Where do you kind of find your inspiration through what you do i mean because i think when you start to look at stuff it it almost like you always have great mentors along the way i think that's a huge part of it but it's also there's a certain point where it's just got to come from between the ears um where do you find some of that inspiration in what you do day to day yeah i think i think there's a couple things i think um inspiration for what we're doing is a found a way to marry two things I'm very passionate about. Retail, impact and impact more or less. Um, and so I'm, ex I'm excited about it. I, I also love big problems. Um, you know, I, I like to be able to see what I'm working on could potentially have this large impact like on the world, on an industry. Um, and that really excites me. And so I get a lot of energy around that. Um, and I kind of joke with my co-founders on like, what's the next problem that I'm going to tackle? And it just seemingly keeps getting bigger and crazier. Like we should fix like the, like the food supply chain and the, it, like globally, it's like, okay, like, all right, like, you know, <laughs> so big problems. I, like I, I like them. I, they, I'm really drawn to that. And so I get a lot of energy knowing that I'm working, working on one of those. Um, inspiration and support, like this is not going to be, this is not going to be like, you know, a, a totally new, new piece of advice or guidance, but 
building a network and an advisory council and um, a group of people that are farther in their career in different verticals that have just run the road that you're trying to go down, wildly helpful. Um, and like we run into problems sometimes and we're like, this is, how are we going to solve this? And we'll go to our network and they're like, this is a standard problem that like 80% of would be like, like, this is how you do it. And you're like, oh, great. Like, we're not great. Like, like, all right, this is solvable. So like having some sanity checks there are really helpful. And then what I tend to, to do, and I like just kind of on reflection here is I like to collect anecdotes that I kind of, that I kind of go to the well on sometimes um, of other founders um, or other entrepreneurs or other investors um, uh, that, you know, how they've like tackled, tackled problems. Um, and, you know, sometimes that's from like articles and reading. Sometimes that's from talking to people, to the founders themselves. Sometimes it's talking to people within their network, um, that they saw that they were impressed by. And, um, you know, we're at, we're at a point right now where we're going from a team of, you know, six to a team of 25, 30, and we're about to grow the team even bigger. And so we're now starting to hit this, this, this stage hopping, essentially. Um, and as you hop and grow businesses, you know, what's needed from a founder is different at each of these stages. Um, and uh, maybe slightly controversial example, but uh, was talking to one of the early employees at WeWork. Uh, talking about Adam Newman. He said... Um, this was also in the throes of when like we crashed was really big. So <laughs> perfect uh, timing, so, by the way, lessons learned reflection. Uh, and he's like, listen, I, everyone had just seen it. And I was like, what, like, dude, what was he really like? Um, give me the non Hollywood example. And he said, yeah, it was crazy. But the thing that he was the most impressed by was that Adam was the founder that the company needed at each of the stages that it got to, all the way from when there were like two people to when there were like 10,000 people. And that's that dexterity is incredibly impressive. And that like evolution um, is, is, it's a little daunting, but it's very impressive to see that that's something that people can do. Um, and that's, you know, I'm, I think my co-founders and I are trying to be really reflective on that. And like, what does the company need from us? And what sort of leader do we need to be in this moment for the company? All while also looking around the corner, seeing where we're going to like, what's that new, different, evolved version of ourselves need, need to be. Um, and, and that requires like a lot of work, a lot of reflection, um, the ability to kind of be nimble and evolve um, and, and change. So, uh, but, it's just one of those, like, I collect, I feel like I collect some of these anecdotes so that as I'm going through these things, I'm like, oh, that's what, that's what this piece of advice or this story kind of, kind of relates to. So anyway, um, that's kind oh, of that's how, huge. how I navigate. That's huge. Um, well, and thank you for sharing that. Cause I, I just think it's, it is wildly important. I mean, I think one of the, the gifts that I get in the, the day to day of running goat is that I, I get to sit down with people like you and, and hear those stories because those are massive anecdotes that you get day to day. And it's like, you realize there's so many lessons and, and, and you also realize that we're not all so different. Um, yeah. you know, it's like, we're, we're all just kind of trying to figure life out 
And every once in a while, we just need a help in hand. And the people that we can surround ourselves by and the things and the lessons that we can learn, like those are the most valuable things along the way. Um, I guess one of the final questions would be, you know, where's your, where's your favorite place to enjoy nature? All the planet. Uh, okay. That's easy. Um, <laughs> let me, I'm also going to, I'm also going to, I'm going to do, I'm going to do two places. Um, <laughs> when I talked about like my, my lack of travel, that also included anything like from the Southeast, anything like West of Colorado. Uh, <laughs> my co-founders from California and, uh, the first time that I went uh, to the Bay Area, like Monterey Bay in particular, hmm. and like 17 mile draw, I was just like, this is the craziest place I've ever <laughs> seen. This is, I, we should all just live right here, um, which the cost of you guys. Yeah, <laughs> it's insane. Beautiful, Lo- love it and, and love being out there. And then I think um, uh, I've, I've recently been out to uh, like kind of Bozeman and, and the Paradise Valley out mm-hmm. in um, out in Montana, uh, and I heard a quote out there where where someone said, um, "When people think of cowboys in Texas, this is what they think about," which I thought was hilarious. Um, uh, no knock on Texas, but just like it's so majestic and beautiful. Yeah, um, I, I really like being out there. I think it's awesome. Um, those are the those are my two favorite. Those are some oh, incredible yeah, places. Those are my two favorite. That's great. I, um, I, earlier in my life, I, I actually was lucky enough to live in Monterey and I lived there for a year and a half and I was, you know, triathlon training at the time. And, uh, my, my daily bike ride, no joke was 17 mile drive. Awesome. And That's it was great. every, every single day you'd probably pass me in a car and yeah. I would just be like smiling the whole way. Cause it was yeah. just like, I can't believe this place is real. The drive on through big Sur, I mean, it just, it's insane. It's crazy. Uh, it's incredible. And listen, a lot of that, a lot of my, uh, a lot of those examples were like American centric, but, um, I just, it it was great. Those are great places. That's amazing. Well, Stuart, thank you so much just for being on the podcast, talking all things, super circle, um, everything thousand fell and just, and really opening up about, you know, your journey as an entrepreneur. Cause I just think it's a valuable way to not only see the world, but to approach it and actually make a change. So thank you. Thanks Steve. I appreciate it. And thanks to the go team for having me on here. This is awesome. Thank you for listening to the Sustainable Goat podcast. I'm your host, Steve Kassinum. With each episode, we can further define what it means to create a truly sustainable and resilient future. I think the new status is to show that that you actually care. You want to drive change and you want to be part of a sustainable future. People fight for what they love. Let's really all start for small but significant shift in the way we live, we consume, and we plan our life. Join us at sustainablegoat.com.